over the course of the last, uh, how many weeks we've been doing this now? Eight? I think it's been about eight weeks. Um, we've worked our way through the first, mostly the first five chapters of the book, which, as we've learned, is primarily Paul's defense against a host of accusations, some false teachers that had um, accused him of things, and that actually hurt his relationship with the Corinthians. As we near the end of his defense here, we see actually our first imperatives, which are our first list of commands. And uh, it's actually tied directly to the relationship that he had with the Corinthians, but also to God. There's basically a series of commands today, and what Paul does is he issues these commands through a series of appeals. You know what an appeal is. It's where you beg somebody to do something. And um, really, we could summarize these appeals into two. The first one is an appeal to be reconciled with God. The second appeal is to be reconciled with Paul and his companions. So we can see why maybe he's addressing this now, because again, he's been defending himself against these false teachers. He's trying to mend the relationship that he has with the Corinthians. But what's more important to Paul is that the relationship between them and their Heavenly Father be reconciled or be mended as well. So if we were to look at um, chapter 5 and 6, and actually all the way into the first verse of chapter 7, we have these two appeals. And they're kind of broken down a little little interestingly here. We're going to kind of, if you look at the two chunks, there's two chunks. But then there's two pieces in each one of those chunks that sort of get pulled out and put with the other one. Does that make sense? It's almost like you got two different puzzles, and you're going to take a piece from this puzzle, and you're going to take a piece from this puzzle, and you're going to move them. So the way this breaks down is this. In verses, or chapter 5, verse 18 through 6.10, and then jumping down to verse 14, to seven one is our text for today. So what we've basically done is taken out 6, 11, 12, and 13, because that actually belongs with our passage from next week. Um, I think Paul has a little bit of ADD here. gets a little confused sometimes. He goes off on a little rabbit trail, and it'll be easier for us to sort of take the puzzle piece out of today, the three verses, and move it to next week. And you'll, you'll see why as we, as we do that. And then next week, we start with chapter 6, 1, or 11, 12, and 13, we take that, and then we jump down to 7, 2 through 16. And so today, Paul is going to deal with his appeal to them to be reconciled to God. The way that we might break this down is that's the primary appeal for today, but then he's going to make three other minor appeals that all relate to that. And so there'll be um, really four sort of sections we do today, but the first one is the primary appeal, and then the rest fit underneath that. So let's go ahead and, and look at this. The passage today will break down fairly easily. Our primary appeal is chapter 5, verse 20, which is be reconciled to God. And then he's going to make three minor appeals. An appeal not to take the grace of God in vain. That's the very first verse of chapter 6. Of chapter six. Then he makes an appeal not to too closely associate themselves with unbelievers. That's down in verse 614. And then he's going to make an appeal to cleanse themselves from all defilement, which is chapter 7, verse 1. Okay? So let's go ahead and... And break these down. Let's look at, um, we'll read chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he was committed to us, or has committed to us, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you to be on, or to, um, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Paul begins today with two declarations. The first one is this, that God had reconciled Paul and his companions to Christ. He says in verse 18, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. The us there actually refers to Paul and his companions. He's talking very specifically about Timothy and, and uh, the other companions that traveled with Paul. However, it also applies to us. So the us, the us there is primarily Paul and his companions, but we're going to see that it also applies to us in a general sense, and that's based on some evidence in the rest of the passage, plus Romans, Paul tells us that God has reconciled us to himself. But the us there is primarily Paul and his companions. 
And he says that God did this through Christ. How many of you know what the substitutionary death of Christ is? Anybody know what that fancy phrase means? It's a big theological one. It means that Christ was our substitute. It's called the substitutionary death of Christ. And Paul's going to refer to that here. Notice that he says that we have been reconciled, or he and his companions have been reconciled, and, and we have as well, by extension, through Christ, number one, because he didn't hold our trespasses against us. Look at verse 19. It says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The trespasses there is sin. Notice, too, that he says in verse 21 that he took him who knew no sin. Who's that? It's Christ. Who knew no sin to be sin. Another way to translate that is a sin offering on our behalf. Christ didn't become sin. The translations in most of our English Bibles, they take a literal translation, but the best way to understand that is that it became a sin offering on our behalf. And then notice what he says. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That is a definition right there of what reconciliation means. If we were to look at maybe an English definition, what does reconciliation mean? It's not a word we oftentimes use, but anybody know what reconciliation means? Anybody want to take a, a guess, put yourself out on the line there? We never want to share anything, do we? Always, I don't want to say anything. What if I'm wrong? What's that? I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dustin had a great definition of it, to put two things back together. It basically means to take and mend a broken relationship. How many of you have ever been in a relationship with somebody, a close friend, where something happens and that relationship is now strained or stressed? Any of you guys have friends in school where that happens? Maybe you don't get along with them anymore. Maybe it was a best friend and all of a sudden now it's really awkward and there's tension. And your desire is, I just want it fixed, you know? I hate this tension. Well, reconciliation refers to putting that relationship back together. And so when Paul uses it here in reference to God, what he's basically saying is that God had reconciled him. He had taken a broken relationship between Paul and his companions, and he himself, God, and he fixed that. And the way that he fixed that was he took their sins and did not hold their sins against them. He didn't penalize them for those sins. He didn't hold them over their heads. He chose to instead forgive and to forget those sins of Paul. Now, we can think of some pretty big sins of the Apostle Paul. Anybody remember what Paul was like before he was saved? Persecution. Murdered Stephen. Actually held the coats while others murdered Stephen. Well, God took and forgave those things. He didn't hold those things against Paul. And how was he able to do that? Well, Paul says in the text here that he took Christ... And he took those sins and placed them on Christ. Made Christ the sin offering for Paul and his companions. And so Christ paid the penalty for those sins, which means that God's wrath was satisfied. The penalty had been paid. The fine had been levied. And so Paul was no longer held accountable for that because Christ took that upon himself. And then we're told that God did that for Paul and his companions so that they might become the righteousness of God. Peter tells us that we have become partakers of the divine nature. That's why we are referred to in the scriptures as holy ones, saints. Think about that. Do you feel like a saint? No, but because of what God did in his reconciliation of us, and again, Paul and his companions here, we are now considered the righteousness of God because we are in Christ. And so Paul lays that out in that declaration. He tells the Corinthians, we've been reconciled to God. But, he goes on, he makes a second declaration here. Verse 18, the second half of it, he says, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul explains what this means in verse 19. If you look at it, What does it mean for Paul to have been given the ministry of reconciliation? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The word of reconciliation is a fancy way of saying the message. 
Down in verse 20, you notice here that he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. So what is Paul referring to here? What he's basically saying is that God had reconciled he and his companions, but not only that, he gave to Paul and his companions a special message. Something to be shared with the world around him. And that message was God's plan of reconciliation. In other words, God had reconciled Paul, and now Paul was a messenger to bring that message to the rest of the world. How many of you know what an ambassador is? You guys studied, some of you guys in school study some of your, you know, your, your stuff related to government and other things? An ambassador is basically somebody who talks on behalf of somebody else, and so we have ambassadors in other nations, because obviously... The President of the United States can't be in every single country, right? And so these ambassadors become the mouthpiece or the representative of our government, of our President, in all of these other nations, and they help to maintain the relationships that we have. Whenever there's a crisis between two nations, oftentimes it's those ambassadors in each nation that begin the process of trying to reconcile the two nations, begin to work things out. And Paul says, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are messengers of of Christ. Paul took this role seriously because look at what he does in the second half of verse 20. He says, We are ambassadors of Christ as though Christ were making an appeal through us. So what did he do? We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's the first imperative. Paul took this role seriously here. This is really at the heart of why Paul was struggling with his relationship with the Corinthians. Why it was so important for him to defend himself for these five or six, actually seven chapters. Because he was an ambassador of Christ appealing to the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. But they were sort of giving him some pushback. So in some respects he's establishing his authority with them. We are ambassadors. God is appealing through us. He's begging us. To beg you to be reconciled to him. I want you to notice something here. We talk about this on occasion when you get into the, the, the Greek text. You can see it in the English text here. Be reconciled is actually in the passive voice. You know what that means? That means you allow yourselves to be reconciled. Paul's not telling them to reconcile themselves. He's not basically telling them to sort of muscle it up and just fix their relationship with God. It's because that's impossible. We're not to reconcile ourselves to God, but rather we are to allow Him to reconcile us. Allow ourselves to be reconciled. This means that God is the initiator of reconciliation, is He not? He's the one that started it. Their role was to accept what God had done, to accept the reconciliation. They were to allow themselves to be reconciled. The question we have to ask here is, why did they need that? Weren't they already Christians? It's a good question. Some of the Corinthians may have been unsaved in need of initial reconciliation. They may have been like Paul. You know, it's like every church, we just make the assumption everybody's saved... I think I've shared this before. We were in an elder meeting one time up at Grace, and somebody asked Pastor Custer, you need to look around the church here. How much of this church population do you think is unsaved? He shocked almost everybody in that group by saying, maybe half. Now, that's just his assessment. We don't know. But the reality of it is every church is filled with people who love the Lord and some who think they love the Lord that really don't. In fact, Jesus himself made it really clear that some will someday stand before him thinking everything is cool. Look at all the great things we did for you. And Jesus is going to say, (laughs) I didn't know you. Paul elsewhere tells his readers to, in some respects, check their salvation. Make sure you are in the faith, he says. Because there are many who simply live the rules and the regulations and jump through the hoops and they think they're saved, but they've never committed themselves to Christ. They're not depending on him for their salvation just because they use the name Christian. And so there may have been some in this church that, in fact, I'm guarantee, I almost guarantee it, that there were some in the church that thought they knew Jesus that probably didn't. 
But there were also some in the church who were clearly saved, but also clearly disobedient. And they were engaged in unrepentant sin and in need of restoration. Look at chapter 6, verse 14, just one verse. It says, Do not be bound with unbelievers, for what partnership have the, un- or have the righteous with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? We'll get to this in a minute, but there were some in the church there who were involved with lawlessness, Paul says. They bound themselves to unbelievers. It was sin, and he was calling them out for it. Turn to chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. Paul would not have had to challenge them to cleanse themselves if they hadn't been involved with sin. Turn to chapter 12, verse 21. Paul says, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Paul says there were still some in the church that had not repented of their sinful activity. We'll get into that in a little bit as well. So not only were there some in the church that probably were unsaved that needed to be reconciled for the first time with God, but there were those in the church who were still involved with sin and Paul was calling on them to be reconciled. So you have, in some respects, this past tense, we have been reconciled. It's where God deals with the the sin and our salvation. But then we have the ongoing day-to-day things that break that relationship with God that may not condemn us to hell, but ultimately impact our relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about it. Almost every one of Paul's letters is to correct sinful behavior. Not all of them, but a majority of them. Where he has to challenge the church to mature, to grow, to put off the old man, to put on the new man. And so that's what Paul is dealing with here. Either way, Paul says, they needed to be reconciled to God to fulfill his purpose, which is found in verse 21. He made Christ, he made him, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the goal. We should be able to reflect the righteousness of God in our relationship with Christ. And the reality of that is, it's very difficult to do if we are not reconciled to God, if we're in a damaged or a broken relationship with Him. And clearly the Corinthians were. So what do we do with this for practical application? If you're anything like me, you go through your ups and downs spiritually. Anybody want to volunteer a hand? Because I do. I'm not suggesting you necessarily have to raise your hand, but I'm going to assume many of you are kind of like me, that you have your ups and downs spiritually. You have your times where your relationship with the Lord seems perfect. And then you've got those times where relationship with the Lord seems a little bit dry, strained. Maybe there are those times where you've done some things where you know you sinned. And it makes it tough to go and to pray or to talk to him because you know there's something not right. It's like that relationship with your best friend when you do something and it just doesn't quite feel right. Am I the only one that feels that way sometimes in my relationship with Christ? I've been saved for over 30 years. I wish I would have gotten it perfect a long time ago. It doesn't always work that way. Now, sometimes that's just a result of getting lazy, meaning, you know, we stop having our devotion times, we stop praying, you know. Maybe we even, you know, stop attending church or hanging out and fellowshipping with other believers. Sometimes that strained relationship with God is just a result of laziness. But you know what? There's other times where it's a result of sin. Sometimes mild, sometimes seriousness. And it's because sin drives a wedge between us and the Lord. Whatever the cause, there are times where we, like the Corinthians, need to be reconciled to God. I'm reminded of James' words. James was writing to a group of believers who were in the diaspora. And it was a church that was really struggling. They were under a lot of pressure and tension, but a lot of it was internal. And he, in chapters 4 and 5, deals with the infighting, the tension between the believer's there, and as part of that, he tells them, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's reconciliation. And so I think the practical application for us here is we need to put ourselves in the place of the Corinthians and realize that there are times where we need to hear what Paul is challenging them with. Be reconciled to the Lord. Make sure that that relationship with him is where it needs to be. And again, if you're anything like me, that kind of goes up and down because we're sinful human beings. In fact, I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul probably, and you're going to see this throughout this text, where he even includes himself in a challenging statement in verse 
1 of chapter 7, Paul has told us in Romans that he struggled too sometimes with sin. He said, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. And he says, it's not always me, it's sin that dwells within me. And so Paul fought the battle of sin. And I would, I would imagine that there were times where the Apostle Paul even struggled and had to go, man, you know what, I've got to fix this. I've got to allow myself to be reconciled to God. So that's the primary challenge that he has for the Corinthians here. Their relationship with the Lord wasn't where it needed to be because of their, in their case, probably because of sin. We're going to see, see that in a little bit here. So Paul challenges them, be reconciled to the Lord. He's going to issue now three supporting appeals as to exactly how they're supposed to do that. And I believe this will give us some insight into what we could do as well. Let's read the first two verses of chapter 6. He says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Notice the the appeal there. It's another imperative, if you will. He says, not to receive the grace of God in vain. The word vain there has a variety of meanings in the New Testament. Everything from being empty or without content, it means to be worthless. It can also be used to refer to lacking effectiveness or result. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. He's saying, "Don't don't let the grace of God not have its effect on you. In other words, there's supposed to be something that happens when God pours out His grace upon us. Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, in a very telling way. He says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove, and here's the word, vain. In other words, it did not prove ineffective. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Paul's life had been radically transformed because of the grace of God. God's grace had a profound effect on Paul. And it's demonstrated in what Paul did with his life. I don't think we need to go much further than what we've already learned about the Apostle Paul, that he was a drastically changed man because of the grace of God in his life. In other words, God's grace was highly effective in changing Paul. And so as he challenges the Corinthians here, as he appeals to them, he says, don't take the Lord's grace in vain. Which basically means to accept it, you accept that gift of grace, but then nothing really changes in your life. You sort of stay the same. It also means to sort of waste it. You know how we waste God's grace? Continuing in sin. Continuing in laziness, not taking it seriously. In the next few verses here, Paul kind of returns to his defense of his ambassadorship of Christ, but he also gives us an example of what it means to not take God's grace in vain. Look at verse 3. He says, Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. What Paul basically is saying there is he did not want to live his life in any way that would discredit his message of reconciliation. But he's going to give us three ways here that that grace was effective in his life. The first is that you can see it in their suffering. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in in afflictions, in hardship, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. So one of the ways that Paul demonstrated in his life the grace of God having its effect was that he was willing to suffer for Christ. We're told that elsewhere. You know, it's interesting, I've been preparing um, to teach on the book of uh, Mark. We're going to cover the Gospel of Mark starting in January. And I was impressed last night... um, When Paul challenges the disciples to pick up his cross and follow them, you know, I kind of sometimes, especially more recently here, struggle a little bit with the way that we function as Christians here in the United States. We're, We're very entitled. God has blessed us tremendously with material blessings. And sometimes we kind of forget that most Christians around the world don't have what we have. 
Christianity around the world is very different than what we see here in the United States. You know, we're able to pursue our our hopes and our dreams. We can have the nice house and nice cars and decent income and jobs and all these freedoms. And that's not a bad thing. That's a blessing from God. But I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that what Christ has called most Christians to is a life of suffering, difficulty. And in some respects, I feel that maybe I pursue the wrong thing sometimes. You know, I'm too interested in my own comforts. And yet, Jesus basically told the disciples not to worry about that, but to be willing to suffer. And I think back, wow, the guys that he told that to? There were 12 there, but we know what happened to Judas. But 11 of those guys all died for their faith. They're all martyred for their faith. I came across an article this morning on Fox News about the... um, In fact, I'm going to read it just briefly here because I think it will put some things into context for us. It's about believers in North Korea. Let me see if this will... Yeah. I'll just... I won't read it. Um... Basically, what the article was about were how the North Koreans can't worship publicly. If they get caught with a Bible, if they get caught saying the name of Jesus, it's 15 years in a hard labor camp. And so what they do is they have to find ways to worship. And the the story describes this group of North Korean Christians who go fishing. And what they basically do is they take their boats and they go out into the middle of the, the river or the lake... And that's where they have their worship service. They kind of gather together and they bring out their Bibles and their Bibles are barely held together. They're water damaged. They're falling apart. And um, while they were out there, this is a true story, while they were out there, another boat began to approach and so they had to hide the the Bibles immediately. But as that boat, boat approached them, the guy called out and greeted them in the name of Jesus, which could also be a trap. In this case, it wasn't. It was a guy who was bringing them new Bibles. And he was part of a group called World, uh, World Help. And as he gave them these Bibles, um, obviously it brought a tremendous amount of joy to them, but um, he then took their old Bibles and he took them back to his hotel room, only to discover that they, were, they disappeared in the hotel room, which now brings fear because now somebody knows he's smuggling Bibles, only to discover that the guy who took them was a maintenance worker or housekeeping person who got the Bibles, who was also a Christian, who didn't have copies of the, of the Bibles and was thrilled at the fact that he got a hold of these old, crummy, beaten-up, water-soaked faded Bibles because he and his private church had been hoping and praying that God would somehow deliver Bibles to them. And so the article was basically about how these, these um, one of the most important things to these North Korean believers are trying to get a hold of copies of God's Word because they just don't have enough. You know, and here we are and I look back at my shelf at home and I kind of go, geez, look at my library of all the, not just the Bibles, but books about Bibles and the Bible software programs that I have that let me study in the Greek and the Hebrew and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, and there are Christians around the world that have pages of the Bible only and some who don't have any, some that have to share. And yet we look at Paul here and he says that we demonstrate God's grace in our life by being willing to suffer. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. He says, We do it in impurity, and we do it in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in word of truth, in power of God, in the weapons of righteousness, in the right hand and the left. Paul says that by the demonstration of God's grace and power in their lives, they demonstrate that they're not taking God's grace in vain. He also says that. It's their proven character that shows that they're not taking God's grace in vain. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold, we live as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. So when Paul challenges the Corinthians not to take the grace of God in vain, he gives them this great example in his own life of the power and the effect of God's grace on his life. It showed in their suffering, it showed in how God's grace and power was demonstrated in their lives, and it showed by their proven character the fact that they were willing to make themselves poor so that many around them might 
become rich. And so as Paul appeals to them to be reconciled to the Lord, the first thing he says that you have to recognize that God's grace is a precious, valuable gift. Don't waste it. Let it have its effect. So what does it mean for us? Are there times in your own life where you take the grace of God in vain? To be real frank, I know there are when I do. shows itself most significantly when I decide to sin knowingly. I hope that doesn't shock anyone, but Sometimes I do. Not proud of it. I had a situation the other day where some words came out of my mouth that shouldn't have, and Kimberly heard it. She called me out on it. I knew it. I was mad. I was angry. That's taking God's grace in vain because I'm basically saying, Yeah, you know what? I know you forgive me, so I'd do it anyway. You know when we do that, we're more susceptible to fall into old habits and sinful behavior like the Corinthians did? One of the reasons the Corinthians were struggling with the things they were struggling with, and we'll get to some of these. We already studied through the book. There's a ton of them. The reason is they were taking God's grace in vain, not treating it as the value that it should have, not allowing it to have its effect on them. You know, it's interesting. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 that it's God's mercy and grace, His kindness that drives us to repentance. That's the way it's supposed to be. And yet there are some times where God is kind and gracious and merciful to us, and instead what we do is we keep on sinning. We don't allow it to drive us to repentance when it really should. That's why it's critical that we don't take His grace for granted by continuing to sin, but rather allow it to transform us and lead us. And so Paul, as he's challenging the Corinthians to be reconciled to God, he says, don't take the Lord's grace in vain. It's a precious gift. Don't waste it. Allow it to transform you. Second thing he does, a second sub-appeal, if you will, he appeals to the Corinthians not to be bound to unbelievers. This is an important one. I think it'll hit us. Chapter 6, verse 14 and following says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, and what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from amidst the, or come out from their midst, and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So the second sub-appeal here, relating to be reconciled to God, is we're not to be bound to unbelievers. This gets to the crux of the matter here for Paul with the Corinthians. The cause of the Corinthians' strained relationship with not only the Lord, but with Paul and his companions had to do with their association with unbelievers. Plain and simple. They were a mess. The English translations of this particular phrase in verse 14 do a number of things. One of them is, do not be bound together with unbelievers. That's the New American Standard. The NET says, do not become partakers with those who do not believe. I think that adds a little bit of flavor to it for us. And then the one that we're all so familiar with, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What's funny about that is we often use that as a passage about dating. It can apply, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. What does he mean? Do not be bound together with unbelievers. That's a challenge. The word that Paul uses here suggests being wrongly matched or mismatched. It means to partner together with. And it means to partner together with those who don't share a common faith in Jesus Christ. Now the problem with the Corinthians wasn't that they associated with unbelievers. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, he told them to go ahead and buy food in the pagan marketplace. In fact, he even encouraged them to accept invitations, dinner invitations, to the house of pagans. So Paul encouraged them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul challenged them told them that they weren't supposed to avoid associating with the unsaved, except, or not to associate with the unsaved. He basically warned them um, to avoid associating with those who are saved who behave in a certain way, 
But then he basically tells them, I'm not telling you to disassociate from the world. If we disassociated from the world, we'd have no witness to the world, right? There are plenty of Christian sects, S-E-C-T-S, that have done that in the past. They segregate themselves. They go off in a hole. They cloister themselves. The problem that Paul was dealing with with the Corinthians and the problem for us is not association with, but rather the degree and the depth to which they were associating in the way that we associate. He may have had in mind their propensity to sue one another in the secular courts, because that's what they did. He may have had in mind their participation in sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes, which is something they did. He may have had in mind their mixed marriages, saved, marrying unsaved. He may have had in mind the men's habits in Corinth of having not just a wife, but a concubine, and what's called a hetera, a high-priced prostitute. That was fairly common, even in the church with the men. He may have had in mind their willingness to join in the temple feasts, where they would go to the temple, and there was meat sacrificed to idols there, and they would involve themselves with idol worship at the temple. These were Christians doing this. Some of these things are actually recorded in 1 Corinthians. That's where most of that came from. That's what they were doing. When Paul wrote them, he was challenging them on that. And he follows it up with this, when he was writing 1 Corinthians. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's a reference to the devil. Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see, God expects us to be in the world, but not of the world. We've heard that before, right? Paul says this in 16 through 18. He's actually quoting a number of Old Testament passages to make his point. He sort of strings them together into a single thought. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, when the Israelites moved into the land of Canaan, it wasn't long before they began to adopt the Canaanite practices. That was a problem. That's why God told the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites. He knew, man, you get in there, if I leave these folks around, and they're hanging out with you, you're going to adopt their ways. So what did they do? They left all the high places there, the high places where the pagans went and worshipped. And what they said was, well, we'll leave the high places there. We'll just stamp the Yahweh bumper sticker on the altar and we'll just worship God there. Hey, why tear down a perfectly good temple when we can use it? Next thing you know, they're worshiping God the same way they're worshiping the Canaanite gods, including sacrificing their children to the fires. And so they began to adopt those practices. In similar fashion, when the Corinthians became Christians, what did they do? Well, they began to follow Christ but they apparently failed to leave behind some of their old Greek pagan practices. They were actually partnering up with the unsaved and continuing in things that offended God and ran counter to their calling as Christians. When I first moved here to Columbus, I might have shared this story before, but when I moved, first moved here to Columbus, um, I was looking for a place to stay. And so the pastor that I had come to help start this new church with um, said he had recently had a young man in his church that had committed his life to Christ. He was going through a very difficult marriage relationship, a separation, a divorce, and some other things. But he was newly saved, and he owned his own house and was looking for a roommate, a Christian roommate, for some accountability. So he asked if I would be willing to move in. So I said, sure. So I met this young man, moved into his house, and um, we were talking one day about um, how he had come to ultimately know the Lord. And so he had shared that Tony, this pastor, had led him to Christ, etc. But then he also began to talk about his relationship with churches and kind of how he ultimately really ended up staying at, at the Grace Brethren Church. And it was partly because he was involved with another large church in the area. After he got saved, he knew some Christians who were going to another large church. And so he started to attend what he called a Bible study. And he said, but I had to leave that after about six months because it was too much of a temptation. I thought that was an odd, odd statement. How can a Bible study be too much of a temptation? He said, well, because this was not your normal Bible study. He said, we would show up, and it was basically a bunch of us in our swimming suits, including a bunch of women in scantily clad 
bikinis and other things. And we would have our Bible study all sitting in a hot tub together. And just outside the hot tub, they would have this big baby pool filled with ice and cases of beer. And we would sit in the hot tub and we would drink our beer and we would study the Bible together. And he said, about half of us would be drunk. Now, this is a fairly large, fairly famous church in town. I don't know that they still do the same thing. And I don't know that it was necessarily a church-sanctioned event. But that's what they did. And Donnie said, it got to the point where I thought, this is more of a temptation than it's worth. Now, in their mind, it was a great way of just letting people be people and kind of coming in and doing their thing, you know. But the Bible says an awful lot about modesty, an awful lot about not getting drunk. It isn't about the fact that some of them like to drink. The fact was, they're having a Bible study where this gentleman told me, we were drunk. Half the time I wouldn't remember some of the things we studied. Okay? It was just like the world. There was no disassociation. And he was smart enough to realize, that's the way I was. That's my old life. I need to separate myself from that. Now, he didn't separate himself from the world because guess what we did together? Almost five days a week, we went and played beach volleyball at a local apartment complex close to the home so that we could hang around with a bunch of unsaved pagans who loved to drink their beer and play volleyball. But we went and we would play volleyball with them five nights a week, sometimes for three to four hours at a shot. And they'd drink and hang out, and Donnie and I just, we didn't drink, but we hung out with them. We had great conversations. They knew we were believers. We didn't disassociate with them, but you see the difference between those two events? One is partnering deep and involving yourself and doing what they do. The other is having an association but still maintaining some Christ-like integrity. And so that's what Paul is challenging the Corinthians to here. He says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't partner up. What's the practical application? Well, I think it's hard for us not to succumb to the norms and the pleasures of our society around us. Like I said, we live, um, face it, this is the richest country in the world. And as Christians, we participate in that. And that's not always a bad thing. But you know what? It can be a huge distraction sometimes because I I sent an article to Dustin um, last night about a a church upstart, a new church in Lewis Center area. They started up in September. Um, They had a trailer stolen. You might have seen it on the news. They had a trailer stolen. $100,000 worth of equipment in a trailer. And this was a group of 78 people, I think, that started the church. Again, I'm not slamming that or saying it's wrong. It's just that I really wonder sometimes here in the United States, you know, even when we launch churches, sometimes it's, it's these big machines that appeal to the masses to get them to come to us and to come in the doors. And you know, I went and I listened to a couple of the messages and um, I thought to myself, wow, I don't know that they're necessary. If this is going to be standard, I don't know that there's going to be much meat or meat on the bone, so to speak. It's, it's fairly typical. And again, it's not to slam that because I know that their hearts are to reach people with the lost. But it's interesting how that, how all of these new churches sort of reflect business and the opulence in the United States. We have to have all the programs and we have to have the big screens and all the high-tech equipment. And again, I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong. It's just interesting how we gravitate towards that. Dustin made a comment this morning about how they didn't know how they were going to have church this Sunday. And Dustin made the comment, is it really wrong to have church without amplification? And I understand the issue they're facing. They've, you know, a lot of people now probably attend, and they have all their Sunday school stuff and all that stuff. But sometimes we kind of lose perspective because we so partner up with the world in terms of what we behave like and what we do, and we think we have to be like them to attract them and all these things, and it gets us stuck in this rut, and we're told not to do that. We're told not to do that. You know, the Bible tells us very clearly that the church will become apostate before Christ returns. I think this is the reason why. We see it today where too many of us continue to partner up or become just like the world instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to be in the world, but I'm not going to be of it. I'm not going to behave like it. That was the problem with the Corinthians. In fact, when you look at Jesus' challenge to the seven churches in the book of Revelation... Out of the seven churches, 
It's only one that he has anything really super positive to say. It's only one that doesn't have anything negative said about them. Jesus rebukes the other six. And that was 2,000 years ago. I think the church is much different today. I think there's going to be some reckoning. I think the Lord's going to have some things to say about the church today because of the way that we behave and the fact that we like to partner up with the world. Maybe not always as a church, but maybe in our behavior. So the challenge would be for us to not partner up, to be very careful about the things that we do. doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things that God has provided to us. But sometimes there's a fine line between lusting after those things or enjoying them too much and forgetting what God really has in mind for us. The last thing, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to cleanse themselves from anything that defiles them. Notice how he sort of goes right from partnering up with the world to now cleanse yourself from things that defile you. It's a natural transition. Verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. The motivation for this appeal comes from what Paul has shared just above. You notice in those Old Testament verses that he strung together, there's a number of promises. I counted four of them. God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, meaning his people. That's the first promise. The second promise is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The third promise is, I will welcome you. The fourth promise is, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. However, all four of those promises are predicated on one thing. God saying, come out from among them. Don't partner up with them. And if you do that, I will be among you. I will be your God. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. There is an expectation. These were all true of Israel as long as they continued to love, honor, and obey the Lord, but we know they didn't. We've already been through a number of Old Testament books that demonstrate Israel's struggle with not separating themselves enough and because of that, defiling themselves. And that's exactly what Paul does here. Stop defiling yourselves. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Notice that Paul wrote, let us here rather than you. Paul included himself in this. This is an ongoing process, folks. It's not one time we get saved and we're done and life is good. It's, we sin sometimes. We do things. You know, I remember, I, I think I told you this before too. I asked the guy that um, mentored me for a number of years, Pastor Krenz. Came into his office one day and I frustrated. I, I think I had done something where I was ashamed of it or whatever and I was struggling with the whole repentance thing. I mean, I was talking to the Lord about it and I felt bad for whatever I had done. And I said, when am I going to finally stop sinning? And I looked at him and I said, when did you stop sinning? And he looked at me and he kind of, what? I'm like, when did you stop sinning? I've been saved for five years here and I'm still sinning. And he kind of laughed and he goes, you don't ever stop sinning, Mike. You grow in an area, you stop in that area, but God then reveals some other areas you got to work on. I'm like, oh, dude, you got it. You're bringing me down here. This is this is not what I was expecting. We see the great apostle Paul tell us that he still struggled with sin, and so this idea of cleansing ourselves from defilement is sort of an ongoing process. It means to purify something. It means to make it clean. It's an Old Testament concept. And he tells us to to clean ourselves from two areas. One is the flesh. And that would include things like sexual immorality, violence, drunkenness, gluttony, anything that impacts the body, you know. He also tells us to cleanse ourselves from anything that defiles the spirit. I think that includes things like lying, stealing, lust, covetousness, jealousy, Envy, strife, wrath, and others. All those things, when we get involved with them, defile us. They make us unclean. That's why Jesus is the one who then does the, or cleans us off on a regular basis. First John tells us that when we sin, he tells us to confess it. But then what does it say? That he is faithful and just to purify us from all unrighteousness. So we have this process here. What Paul is really calling them here to is repent of the things that defile you. And in doing that, the Lord will cleanse you. He will clean you off. Remember, with you know, one of the reasons we practice threefold communion here is part of that is the discussion in John 13 where Jesus is telling Peter, you're already clean, but guess what? You're going to get your feet dirty. I've got to wash you off on a regular basis. 
That's the cleansing that takes place. So what's the practical application for us here? And we'll wrap up with this. In one respect, we've already been clean. All of us, just like Peter. You're already, you're already clean, Peter. But the scriptures continue to tell us, call upon us to cleanse ourselves and to allow ourselves to be cleansed in the present tense. Ephesians chapter 5. Just briefly turn there with me. Ephesians 5. I got the time because I think the clock is... Is the clock right there, Dustin? A few minutes after? Is it right? Okay, just off by an hour. Ephesians 5, verse 25. You know what it means when a pastor looks at his watch? What? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he mightily, or that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, past tense. Christ has cleansed the church by washing of the water with the word. So Christ has already cleansed us, but then I want you to look at James chapter 4, verse 8. Again, James, his readers were having some issues involved with gross sin on some occasions. Chapter 4, I think it's verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then he says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we have Paul telling us in Ephesians that Jesus has already cleansed us, but now we have James telling us, clean ourselves off. So we have a responsibility. And as I've said, it already is revealed to us by what John tells us to do. Stop sinning. Repent. Go to Christ for forgiveness and he will cleanse you. Present tense. The goal of this, he says in verse 1 of chapter 7, is that it perfects holiness and the fear of God. You know what the Lord's goal is for you? Perfect holiness. Not just positionally, because we are already perfect and holy positionally. We wear the righteousness of Christ. But God also has something else in mind. Perfecting holiness here and now. How long is that going to take? Until we see Christ. But it's a process. And so Paul says the goal is perfecting holiness in the fear of Christ.